Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, thank God there's no game tonight because otherwise one of our performers wouldn't be able to be here tonight. Here are two artists who have three Academy Awards, 20 nominations between them, and they're here in person. Ladies and gentlemen, the Joker and Dick Tracy, Mr. Jack Nicholson, Mr. Warren Beatty. Nominees for Best Picture are Born on the Fourth of July, A. Kitman Ho and Oliver Stone Producers, Dead Poets Society, Stephen Haft, Paul Younger Witt, and Tony Thomas Producers, Driving Miss Daisy, Richard D. Zanuck and Lily Finney Zanuck Producers, Field of Dreams, Lawrence Gordon and Charles Gordon Producers, My Left Foot. Noel Pearson, producer. And the Oscar goes to... <laughs> Hello there, all you cherries, all you dead poets, all you steel magnolias. And welcome back to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, the best and most esteemed podcast for Academy Award do-overs. I'm Lee. I'm Spro, and we are here to rewrite Oscar history one gold man at a time. Today, we're happy to welcome Claire, the host of Why the Flick, a movie podcast that asks the hard-hitting question, why the flick? Thanks for being here, Claire. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be joining you guys. Sometimes when we invite people, it can get a little bit hairy. We've had people cancel when they find out how many movies they have to watch. Cowards. Ah. Just kidding. Just kidding. I don't no, they are. You were right. You were right. I do a lot more podcast listening than my compatriot. I go hunting for like new movie podcasts. Oh, cool. And I give a lot of them like a chance, but I don't stick with very many many of them. Your show I have stuck with. I find it has a really comforting tone. It's very soothing. Take that for what you will, but it is, it's definitely meant as a compliment. And I thought it was funny too, because I looked at your reviews on Apple Podcast and someone literally, the title of one of the reviews is such a soothing listen or something like that. That's so sweet. It is. It's really I nice. I often feel like I'm stuttering and stumbling over my words. And so when I go back and listen to the audio, I'm like, oh, it's not as bad as I thought it was. Before we get into our show, let's talk a little bit more about Why the Flick. What can our listeners, if they switch the channel over to your show, expect? Yeah. So I run a every other week podcast. So we come out on Tuesdays and each episode we focus on one specific movie. Usually I'll have guests come on each episode. The guests and I will choose which movie we're going to talk about. So it's kind of a team effort. And then, yeah, we just like talk about the movie, our likes, our dislikes, what themes we saw, you know, different stuff. And then we have different segments at the end of our podcast too, where we do like play on words for Duffleck moments. Those are like rhetorical questions that we ask. Um, we also have nominees for Dick of the Flick uh, in the movie we watched, and then my we give it a rating. <laughs> oh, thank you! It's a new segment this season, and it's my personal favorite as well. So I uh, really enjoy that. And yeah, we just really talk about movies the entire time. How do you choose your movies? I usually will have the guests send me a list of three movies to pick from, and then I go from there and. I kind of figure out which one I want personally, but also like try to give a little bit of variety for each episode. What's your favorite episode so far? 
far my out of all favorite... your babies which is oh your my gosh baby? it's so hard to pick <laughs> my favorite episode um, personally was in season one it was my first movie pick this was back when i had a co-host but i picked jurassic park just because mm. it's my all-time favorite movie so i really loved that episode because i am such a jurassic park nerd that i just talked about all the nerdy stuff for an hour and a half and it was the time of my life so that's a personal favorite but i also really liked our you've got mail episode surprisingly enough like we just had a lot of fun with that one one movie that we didn't like but i had fun talking about was power of the dog (laughs) but yeah they're all great i love them all equally okay three questions on what you just said one jurassic park what did you think about jurassic world two you've got mail what do you think about the ending and then three, when it comes to Power of the Dog, did you find Benedict Cumberbatch at all threatening? I actually really do like the first Jurassic World. I know a lot of people don't, but I really enjoyed it when it came out. And then the second one is okay. But the third one disappointed me so much that <laughs> I don't think I'll ever have high expectations for going into a movie ever again because it really hurt me. Whatever. It's fine. What else? Oh, the uh, You've Got Mail ending is super fucked up. Uh, now that I think about it, my co-host and I talked about it, how like if that were me, I would be traumatized. I would be like, no, thank you. It is only because it is Tom Hanks that it is okay, you know. And then Power of the Dog. Uh, no, I do not find Benedict Cumberbatch threatening. All right answers. I'm good to go, Lee, if you are. <laughs> well, well, hold on one second, because... Are, are you guys, what are you referencing? Are you referencing the fact that it's Tom Hanks all, that was him all along? Well, he closed yeah. down her store. Right, right, right. I remember that. I was like, did he but fucking, he like, man, He manipulated her to fall in love with him through chat and didn't tell her who he was. Like, I'll be honest, I do still cry every time at the end because <laughs> that fucking song comes on somewhere over the rainbow and it gets me every time. So, yeah, I mean, I'm still susceptible to the romantic comedy of it all. But when you think about it, it's kind of okay. fucked up. Definitely. I, that, I, that movie is a, is a special place in my memory as when I think of pre-9-11 America, I think mm. of movies like You've Got Mail. It's like, man, we had no idea what was coming. <laughs> I know. So you were in a former life, a journalist. Mm-hmm. Um, you are now a podcaster. And I am curious if you have a favorite movie about journalism. And I, I can- do, actually. Okay. I'm so glad you asked this because I think my favorite is Spotlight, which yes. I believe won for Best Picture. Sure did. did. It? Great. Man, that movie is just... It's strangely could, rewatchable, isn't it? It is. I could watch it again and again and find something new every single time. I think the performances are really good with a stacked cast and just the way that the story unfolds of how they got all of these interviews and kept digging to find the story it just really speaks to me and sometimes makes me miss journalism a little bit. And I'm like, God, you know what? There are still good journalists out there who are doing <laughs> the Lord's work. All right. Next question. Because our little show focuses on the Academy Awards, we're curious if you subject yourself to watching the Oscars telecast. I do. And I love how you say subject yourself. But yeah, I do watch the Oscars faithfully every year. I don't know why I do this to myself, but I do. I will say, though, like in most years, I unfortunately don't watch a lot of the nominees just because I am typically watching other content. But this past year, I've watched 
watched more than I think I ever have, especially with everything everywhere all at once being nominated for so many awards. And I loved that we covered it on our podcast last year too. So definitely I was more hyped this year. So you were happy that it won Best Picture? Yeah, I was happy that it swept. I mean, honestly, like it was just such an incredible movie. I feel like blended comedy and drama so well together was just super unexpected. And the Daniels are pure geniuses, I think. So I'm excited to see what they come up with next. All right. Last question before we can get into this. What was the last movie that you watched and it really knocked you on your ass? It could be a new one, an old one. Doesn't matter to me. I was thinking about this and I had two answers. One was everything, everywhere, all at once really knocked me on my ass. But um, I'd also say Nope. I really liked Nope and I don't feel like it got enough love. Certainly not enough Oscar nomination love, but yeah. It was beloved by critics though. So you're in good company there. Okay. Well, that's not usual. (laughs) I feel like I'm usually against the critics. But yeah, um, I went to see Nope in theaters. And I mean, I was just like ripped the entire time. I really enjoyed it. The cinematography is stunning. I really liked the story. And yeah, like I said, knocked me on my ass. Like the whole Gordy scene traumatized me for sure. Man, I guess I got to watch it again. I saw it in the theater too. And I was like, yeah, because I loved Get Out. I think Us is in some ways even better writing and better filmmaking than Get Out. And Nope, just I was crestfallen. I was like falling asleep by the end. See, I saw Nope before I saw Get Out. And I did that (laughs) intentionally so that my expectations would be, Um, you know, leveled. Yeah. All right. The lightning round is over. I have a question. Oh, it continues. I have have another last question. How do you take your coffee? Um, With cream. Hazelnut cream, I should say. Our sponsor is Odd Dog Coffee and Lee is about to go work for their company. And so we should just ask our guests how they take their coffee or if they drink like, you know, white chocolate mochas or something. That's also (laughs) what I drink is white mocha. (laughs) All right, let's get into it. This week, we have set our sights on the Oscar for the best picture of 1990, which went to Driving Miss Daisy, Richard Dizanik, Driving Miss Daisy, the story of a stubborn and snippy elderly Georgian gal who reluctantly permits an affable black chap to be her chauffeur. You might not know, as I didn't, that it's actually adapted from Alfred Uri's Pulitzer Prize winning play of the same name. Uri based Daisy and Hoke's relationship on his own mother, Lena G. Fox, and her chauffeur, Will Coleman, which I guess makes him bully. And as long as we're talking about bully, it is fucking bonkers to see Dan Aykroyd in this role. And it's even fucking crazier to me that he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. It is otherworldly. We're up here for really one very simple reason, and that's the fact that Bruce Beresford is a brilliant director. It's as simple as that. Our everlasting thanks to Bruce and to Alfred Urey, whose words of love and wisdom touched us all. Our thanks to a great cast, Jessica and Morgan, Danny, and the rest. Our thanks to the wonderful crew, those in Atlanta as well as those here. And uh, we thank David Brown for being very instrumental in the early stages of this production. And to our partner and dear friend who had such great faith in us from the very beginning and in this project from the very beginning, Jerry Parenchio. I'd very much like to thank the people at Warner Brothers, Alan Stewart and, and Jake Eberts for 
taking care of us, and Bob Daly, Terry Semmel, Robbie Friedman, Joel Wayne, Rob Friedman, I said that twice, <laughs> Don McElwain, Ronnie Chasen, and very much the group in London at Majestic. And I would like to thank Ronnie Chasen, and I hope I'm as religious all the rest of the year as I've been the last two months. And I, and I would very much like to thank the Academy for honoring us and making my mama so proud. Thank you. I, I concur. I'm like surprised that this was a stage play. Have you ever seen a play where they're like in the car for a good portion of it? It's boring as shit. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> because it's, you know, like you got this whole stage and literally to emulate a car on the stage, like it's just one little piece of the stage. And obviously there's just two actors sitting there delivering lines. I can't imagine seeing this in a theater. Well, Driving Miss Daisy was on TV all the time when I was growing up. I saw it a lot in my youth, but I don't ever remember connecting too deeply with it, maybe because I was so much younger than the characters, but the music has managed to stick with me to this day. And that's not a compliment. (laughs) In addition to Best Picture, it won Best Writing, Best Actress for Tandy, and inexplicably Best Makeup. Why? Because you made an old person look a little bit older? It's like, get the fuck out of here. But it was up for a total of nine, including Best Actor for Morgan Freeman, and then the aforementioned Best Supporting for Dan Aykroyd. So I tend to dislike like movies like these. And I lump it in with Gran Torino and American History X and Remember the Titans and Crash. These movies that depict the transformation of a bigot to an ally. I find them unrealistic on the level of most action films. The characters are either trivial or downright negligible. The stories are stock and uninspiring. And while the messages they tender are well-intentioned, they're so diluted that an eight-year-old can track them. So call me cynical, but if you're a filmmaker looking to address something as complex as American race relations, you gotta do better than drive Miss Daisy or Green Book, both of which are some basic bitch shit, and both of which won Best Picture the year they came out. Anybody got something nice to say about this movie? I don't really know. If there was one nice thing I would say about this movie, and I put this in my notes, is that the music is incredibly charming to me. And I think that's just because I used to be obsessed with the movie The Holiday. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but in that Jack Black hums the song. I don't know, I just think it's stuck with me ever since. So then I actually watched the movie and uh, listened to the soundtrack and I was like, ah, pieced it together. The other thing I like is it is a tight 90, you know, it was short and sweet, which I was like, thank God. But yeah, it's not good and certainly I don't think enough to win best picture I mean what the actual flick and the first thing that caught my eye was a hole behind the lima beans and I knew right away there were only eight cans of salmon I had nine three for a dollar on sale well very clever mama you made me miss my breakfast and be late to a meeting at the bank, all for a 33-cent can of salmon. Here, you want 33 cents? Here's a dollar. Here's $10. Go ahead, buy yourself a whole pantry full of salmon. Why, fooly the idea. Waving money at me like I don't know what. I don't want the money. I want my things. One can of salmon. Well, it was mine. I leave him plenty of food every day. And I always tell him exactly what it is. They're like having children in the house. They want something, they just take it. Oh, he'll never admit this. No, Mummy will say, I don't know nothing about that. And I don't like it. I don't like living this way. I have no privacy. Mama. Oh, go ahead. 
Defend him, you always do. All right, I'll give up. You want to drive yourself again, go ahead and arrange it with the insurance company. Take your blessed trolley. Buy yourself a taxi cab. Anything you want. Just leave me out of it. What? Beauty. Yeah, I think it's a really rose-colored look at race relations. And there were so many moments in the movie where I was like, this is just not realistic. I mean, there's a scene where Hoke is following Daisy in her car. And I'm like, you're telling me he's not going to get arrested in that scene or in the scene when the police officers come up on them when they're parked in the field or whatever. Like, he is not going to get arrested in either of the situations, which I feel like he would. I don't feel like it's realistic that he would continue to like get raises and everything would kind of elevate in that sense. It just doesn't feel real to me. I also don't think Daisy is completely, you know, not racist by the end of the movie still. I still don't know like how we got to the conclusion that she likes Hoke at all, just based off of her actions and the things that she did, especially not inviting him into the MLK convention or rally or whatever it was at the end. It was clearly a way for the Oscars to kind of pat their backs and say, look, guys, we do support the Black community. And I just think it's pretty gross. I almost think the Oscar community at this time, before we were injecting it with diversity and everything nowadays, that this was largely 60-year-old white dudes like sitting around being like, oh, Dan Aykroyd reminds me of me, you know? And Mm, that's probably why he got nominated. And then Jessica Tandy reminded them of their mom or their grandma. And they're like, well, you know what? She wasn't that bad at the end, which means we're not that bad in the end. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not a movie about the black experience. It's a movie about a white person's experience. Jessica Tandy mm-hmm. is the main character, and Hulk is just this kill him with kindness dude who's like, I'm going to wear this bitch down. I didn't even realize there's a whole like anti Semitism aspect to this movie, too, because they're Jewish. And I feel like that's a whole other part of the movie that happens where they're like being very derogatory to them being Jewish, too. So it just seemed bad on all fronts. Racism has no rules. Oh, no. But I'm glad that we're actually talking about this because Lee made the statement that he did not like Remember the Titans. And that's a film that deals with race relations, but that I also very much enjoy. And I think like there are still white players at the end that are still racist dickheads. And it's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, not everybody gets saved. But is there a movie that you think deals fairly with race relations? Or it's like it's an impossible subject and we can only put on rose colored glasses when dealing with it? No, I don't think it's impossible to talk about. I don't know if this fits the brief, but I was thinking of Get Out, honestly. Like, I mean, I feel like that does a really good job of highlighting like casual racism and also... And I say this knowing that I'm a white woman. I fully want to be transparent in in that sense that I don't know everything. But the fact of like how the black community feels like they have to be more quote unquote white for the white community in that sense. I just feel like Get Out had so many more layers to add to the conversation than Driving Miss Daisy ever did. Well put. All right. We're taking the Oscar away from Driving Miss Daisy, but who shall we give it to? Before we go any further, though, it's time for Spro to give his Oscar fun fact brought to you by Odd Dog Coffee. For some of us, coffee is more than just a pick-me-up. For some of us, coffee is as important as who should have won Best Actor 2022. We take our coffee seriously. We're passionate, eccentric, and a little odd. And for us, there's Odd Dog. Odd Dog Coffee is a mobile cafe and coffee retailer from Cleveland, Ohio. They offer committed coffee drinkers a reimagined version of flavored coffee. They promise you a high-quality roast profile to create a solid bean. 
when they flavor their beans, they don't spray them down with cheap, stale chemicals. No, no. No, they use fresh ingredients like cacao nibs, cayenne pepper, and cinnamon sticks. What you experience is a balanced bean combined with a touch of spice to create a uniquely delicious cup of coffee you can drink every day. Head over to OddDogCoffee.com, where you can choose from three original roasts, cardamom and clove spike, the good boy blend of just the beans, and finally, my favorite, cinnamon, cayenne, and cacao. And if you're in the Cleveland area, check out their online menu at OddDogCoffee.com and visit them at the Walter Stinson Community Park in University Heights, Ohio. Like film nerds, Odd Dog is at home with its dedication. Comfortable in its uniqueness, cozily familiar, yet distinctly odd. The movies we watch are too special to be normal, and the coffee you drink is too precious to be anything but odd dog got a nice quick oscar fun fact for you today and it's titled the academy student film awards and spike lee's first oscar the low-hanging fruit for an oscar fun fact this year is the fact that spike lee has been very vocal at how unhappy he was do the right thing lost out to driving miss daisy for best picture in fact i don't know of another person who has had the same downright public vitriol spike lee has had for decades for the academy awards But upon my research, I learned that Mr. Lee has an Academy Award himself. I mean, despite the time he won for Best Adapted Screenplay of Black Klansman, which, was it a we're sorry award? I don't know. I'm not saying it is. I'm not saying it is right now. I'm just putting it out there. Maybe, maybe it was. In 1990, though, Do the Right Thing was nominated for Best Original Screenplay, which I I could get behind that winning, right? But it lost to Dead Poets Society, which... I can stomach that win as well. Also nominated that year, Nora Ephron's When Harry Met Sally. So all in all, pretty good year for original screenplays. It's a tough racket. It was a tough category to be in, Mr. Lee. Despite the 2019 Oscar for writing and an honorary award in 2016 for being Spike Lee, Spike Lee won. He won the Student Academy Award in 1983. See, the Student Academy Awards is an international student film competition established in 1972. Each year, college and university film students from all over the world compete for awards and cash grants, with films being judged in the following categories. There's animation, documentary, live-action narrative, and alternative-slash-experimental. Several award winners have gone on to significant achievement as filmmakers. You've got Spike Lee, and also there's Robert Zemeckis, Bob Saget, Trey Parker, Pete Docter, and John Lasseter. Now, I know I've seen the Academy bring out young people and applaud on stage during the Academy Awards, but I didn't realize this was a whole subdivision of the Academy Awards. And to win one puts you on the list of having won an Oscar, which I thought was pretty cool. So all you youngins out there who are looking for a way to earn your Academy Award before becoming an adult, this is the way to do it. And I hope one of our listeners actually wins an Academy Award one day. I think that would be pretty cool. I'd probably never know that it was a listener unless you shout our name on the stage. And if you do, oh my gosh, please please, please shout Spro and Lee Take on the Academy was one of your favorite podcasts. <laughs> uh, but that's it. Nice, fun, sweet, short. What do you got, Lee? As Rafiki the monkey once said, it is time. 
Time to talk about the movies that didn't even get a nod, and there are quite a few of them, so let's get started with The Abyss. The Abyss is James Cameron's fourth film, if you count Piranha 2, The Spawning. It follows a crew of off-coast oil drillers tasked by the government with investigating the wreckage of a nuclear submarine that has inexplicably crashed. In the depths, the crew discovers something possibly magical. What is up with James Cameron and sinking ships, first of all? Like, what? He loves it. I mean, he does a really good job at it. I'll give him that. So, yeah, I really wanted to add The Abyss to my watch list for this episode because I keep hearing such great things about it. I think it's because Avatar 2 came out and a lot of people were saying The Abyss was one of his best works and and it was kind of overlooked at the time. And so I'm glad I did watch it. And I do think this is kind of a snub in my personal opinion that this movie didn't get nominated for Best Picture because I find it to be way more engaging than some of the other Oscar nominees. And I think that's really because it's a sci-fi movie and I'm really drawn into that kind of genre. And so to me, like, yeah, it was a two and a half hour movie or give or take, but I was engaged with watching it the entire time and I wanted to find out what happened and everything. So yeah, I mean, I guess at least it won best visual effects. So there's that. I love this movie. Spro, do you like this one? Last year, I took it upon myself to read all of James Cameron's, Jimmy Cam's uh, screenplays. And this one was one of the best ones. I was like getting all shivers and everything by the end of the script and getting a little teared up and whatnot with the love story and how it's displayed on the screen. I also really like the fact that you can see where he was going to go with Terminator 2 with the visual effects and the T-1000 that yeah, he was approaching. So yeah. he's kind of like experimenting with this film, which is also a great film. And you can kind of see see with James Cameron, his evolution as a filmmaker. I go back and forth with this whole Avatar deal and like the five seasons of it. For whatever off-putting reason, it reminds me of South Park and when they're like, we're going to sign a 20-year deal. And I'm like, I would like to see what else you guys can do. Like, I would like to see what else James Cameron can do other than Avatars because I think he is one of my favorite filmmakers today, which I would not have said before I read all of his screenplays. He is a fantastic writer. Wow. High praise. When people talk about Cameron, you guys are right. The Abyss does not come up too often. And I don't know why either. Acting wise, I think it's leaps and bounds ahead of any other film that he's made. But that just might be because the actors in The Abyss reportedly really went through something while making this movie. There was, well, Cameron's reputation precedes him. I mean, anybody that follows filmmakers and the movie industry knows that the man is notoriously tyrannical on sets. And while there's really only rumors of breakdowns and violence on the Abyss set, none of the film's actors really have gone into much detail. In fact, Ed Harris says he never wants to talk about the film again and likened it to the trauma of a soldier coming back from a war. But what is With violence? That and it? I feel like that's coming a lot from Ed Harris because I feel like he can handle some shit and yeah. the fact that he doesn't want to talk about this film and he's traumatized by it. James Cameron, what did you do to this man? <laughs> On a lighter tone, I'm still not half convinced because I watched this movie growing up as a kid and there's a lot of things that happened in my my watching career that I like I just believed I'm still not half convinced that this technology if you can call it that doesn't exist where you could breathe amber water it, it does exist. It, does. it does exist it absolutely it does? does that that rat I thought you all uh, were messing with me they 100% drown that rat well that doesn't they drown the rat well they drown it in Wait. that stuff so that it could breathe oh but is I it was like really? if they drown the rat like then it doesn't exist <laughs> well <laughs> the rat I, died I think, <laughs> no 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 technically by definition you could breathe water you will drown but you could breathe water. (laughs) Okay, fine. The rat breathes water. (laughs) Fluid breathing system. We just got them. 
You use it when you go really deep. How deep? Deep. How deep? It's classified. Anyway, you breathe liquid so you can't get compressed. The pressure doesn't get you. You mean you got liquid in your lungs? Oxygenated fluorocarbon emulsion. Bullshit. Check this out. Uh, can I borrow your rack? What, what are you doing? Hey, hey, hey. Wait, no, no, gonna, no, 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 no. You're gonna kill her! It's okay, I've done this myself. Oh, man, look, what are you, you're just drowning her? She's gonna be fine. I read this myself. Gonna be fine. No, man, she, she's gonna drown. Look, look, she's freaking out. She's going through a normal adjustment period. Norma, does this look normal to you? She's gonna drown. He's taking the fluid into his lungs. He's taking the fluid into his lungs. There he goes. So there's a bit of anxiety here. Now he's starting to relax. He's breathing fine. See his chest moving? Getting plenty of oxygen. <laughs> Damn, Rats breathing that shit. That is no bullshit, hands down, the goddamnest thing I ever saw. See, the fluid's harder to push in and out than air. It's, it's a little more work to breathe. But he's doing fine. He's digging it. She's doing it. She ain't digging it. All right, let her out. Now. Now. Okay, all right. Okay, now we let the fluid drain from his lungs. All right, all right give it here. Give it, give it, give it. Oh, you rat. Baby. See, he's fine. It's a she. Listeners, The Abyss is an exciting and beautiful survival story about faith and love. The script is definitely built upon a very simple premise and can on occasion get a little bit clunky in the dialogue, but the action and the suspense, just like in Aliens, it really never lets up for very long. The characters are mostly archetypes, but it doesn't stop us from really caring about them, including the She-Rat. And I'll be damned if that final act doesn't always make me weep. I think it's funny, Spro, that you brought up Avatar because when I rewatched it, this time, I really noticed some traces, like thematically, you know, technology and environment, good, military and authority, bad, magical water people, and Ed Harris's arm is stained blue for over half the movie, just like a Navi. (laughs) The inspiration (laughs) for it all. Yeah. And Cameron's always going to be like anti-corporation, really. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Keep keep putting out Disney movies. He's very into (laughs) conservation, too, with with the water of it all. So that definitely still tries. All right, next up then is Casualties of War, a Brian De Palma movie. Have we talked about one of these in an official capacity yet? No, I think this is the first one. Honestly, though, other than The Untouchables, I don't think I'm much of a De Palma fan. No, not Scarface or Carrie or the original Mission Impossible? Uh, The one that started it all? Okay, you're right. You're definitely right about the first Mission Impossible. That's still my favorite one. But nope to Scarface. And Carrie's all right. Hmm. Are you shitting on Scarface because everybody likes it? Is that that's just how you do it? My favorite part of the movie is where he gets blown away. And that's the lead character. Is that what Oliver Stone was going for in his script? Because I don't give a flying fuck about him at all. Uh, Anyway. All right, moving on. Casualties of War was a pretty powerful watch. It's based on these true events which have come to be known as Incident on Hill 192. In November of 1966, during the Vietnam War, five American soldiers kidnapped a young Vietnamese woman named 
Fan Timau gang raped and murdered her. The script centers on Michael J. Fox's character, Erickson, who is horrified by his fellow soldiers and refuses to partake in abusing Mao. There's a scene where he challenges his CO, played by Sean Penn, and it becomes very clear that Fox stands alone. His fellow soldiers, as well as his commanding officer, make it clear that they have no compunction killing him and leaving him in the jungle. Tarantino called this the best film about the Vietnam War, and I don't agree that it is the best, but it it might be the hardest to watch since, unlike Platoon and Apocalypse Now, these events actually happen. And not to be the political one here, but these kind of wartime incidents of brutality and rape, they happen every day. Maybe not by Americans, but as the world conquers, we still have our stories. And while the United States does not recognize the International Criminal Court as having any authority, and therefore we ignore when we're charged with war crimes, we do have our skeletons in the closet, which, like you said, makes this movie a much harder watch because it really happened. But very unsettling plot aside, this obviously is not a movie for my sentimentalities. I'm on the record saying rape is goddamn traumatic for me to watch, and this movie is rife with it. But that aside, I found the performances and editing over dramatic. Even the climatic scene where they shoot their rape victim off the rail bridge, you have Michael J. Fox screaming into the steel, Sean Penn screaming into the air, tight shot of John C. Riley looking unsure of what to do. It was off putting. It was weird. It was bumping me out. We gotta get rid of him. We're gonna have every kind of bird stuck on the show. Do it. Do it. I'll do it, Sarge. Diaz, don't do it, goddammit. Do it. Diaz, no, man. Don't do it. Come on, you yellow piece of shit. Be a man. Diaz, don't do it, man. Be a man. Don't do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Don't let him make you do it, Diaz. Don't do it, man. Do it. Do it. Do it, you fucking piece of shit. Do it. Diaz. Diaz. Do it. Do it. But if you haven't seen this movie and can stomach rape and can disassociate with how this is going on somewhere in the world as you watch it, it definitely is a nice cast to revisit, especially Ving Rams. Rams. You say Rams, I say Rams. Tomato, tomato, <laughs> potato, potato. Let's call the whole thing off. Next on the list is Spike Lee's third film, Do the Right Thing. And this is the one that I think most people believe he should have won something for. I imagine that if this film had been released 30 years later, it would have been nominated for and probably won at least a few Oscars. I still think it was ahead of its time. What do you guys think? Well, I still don't understand Rosie Perez's dancing at the very beginning. And every time that comes on, I'm like, Yeesh. You get hung up on the weirdest shit. I swear I to do. God. I'm very particular. I have complexes, all right? I can't judge because I can't dance like that and have never, but I don't think I would ever. And I don't necessarily understand the choice there. But I do think, and I shit on Spike Lee a whole lot, especially his later career. But I think the best scene of this movie has no plot in it whatsoever. It's when Spike Lee is coming home after a delivery and walking across the street and there's a handful of characters. They're walking about either interacting with their surroundings or Spike Lee. And it's such a sliver of reality. I love it and I want to live in it. 
that long shot might be Spike Lee's best work. But there are other scenes that just feel like setups, like the steps of the brownstones that are perfect examples of Spike Lee's style that I, I like. I do not like. It's very implicitly set up shots, almost like we're watching a theater director direct a movie and it, it bumps me out. I don't get that criticism uh, because I feel the same way. Scorsese does the same things that you're talking about. But rather than bumping me out, I get all giddy. It's like a throwback to when theater directors were making the shift from theater to Hollywood. Like the shot from Malcolm X where he's on some kind of like a flatbed and they're just pulling him. You know the shot I'm talking about? It's the very end. A change is going to come, is playing, and he's going to his final speech, the one where he gets shot at. Yeah, I know what's in your title. It's what's great. The movie? Okay. It's great. What's the scene? <laughs> fucking the asshole. <laughs> <laughs> what's the movie with like Delroy Lindo that we talked about recently? Defy Bloods. The that's Defy ba- Bloods. It's, it's bad. Oh my gosh. And so, and that's what I'm talking about. Like they're walking through Vegas and you can completely tell that it's four people walking at a quarter of a step and the crowd is parting for them and the film crew behind them. There are just shots and really it's Martin Lawrence. <laughs> in this movie that like I go oh this is a scene that I do not like shitting on it aside I will always enjoy watching this film and I think it should have been nominated probably but I disagree with Spike Lee that this is a winner what do you say Claire I really made sure to watch this one of any of the ones that weren't nominated because after I was reading about Driving Miss Daisy and the controversy there, I read so much commentary on how Do the Right Thing should have been nominated instead of Driving Miss Daisy. And I think they're right. You know, if you're going to nominate a movie about the Black experience, it probably should have been this one. And I do see your point where I think it does seem ahead of its time in a lot of ways. And a lot of those ways, unfortunately, it's still the case today where we still deal with racial discrimination and police brutality. Obviously upsetting that not much has changed in the last 30 plus years since this movie came out. But I think when it comes to things like the visual style, the cinematography, costume design, the jazz score, and the fact that Fight the Power keeps playing throughout the movie, all of those things contribute to it celebrating Black culture. And there's also two opposing thoughts that are happening throughout the movie between Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, kind of these conflicting ideologies. And it's really a backdrop for everything that's happening in the movie, the character motives, the decisions that they make. And it all comes together in the end credit scenes when they show those two quotes at the end of the movie. I also think it's really a cruel joke that Spike Lee was not only snubbed for this movie, but also Black Klansman when Green Book won in 2019, which I didn't even make the connection until I was researching this. And so, yeah, I just think that's more proof that nothing else has really changed, which is sad. Not to bring you know, it down, guys. No, no, no. What did he What did he say? He said something like, man, every, every, time, every time we're in a car, I lose. <laughs> mm. Yeah. He did win yeah. the writing for Black Klansman. Yeah, that was a bone. That was a big yeah, Oh, him, yeah, absolutely. They threw him a bone there. I mean, it was the best reviewed film of the year. It made 112 top 10 lists, and it was slotted number one on 21 of those. I'm not saying that the best reviewed film should always win Best Picture, but it, it kind of tells a tale. You always say, Spro, that Best Picture winners should or at least tend to carry some kind of a social message and do the right thing definitely does. Claire very eloquently laid that out for us. 
Plus, plus it's, it is a film about race relations, which we were talking about. It's relevant to the Oscar we're taking away. But it's a movie that, like, when you stack this against Driving Miss Daisy, it's like one of these is dusty and fucking archaic. And one of them feels relevant today. And it, yeah. it's more honest than Driving Miss Daisy. It's far less commemorative than Edward Zwick's Glory, which we're going to talk about in a little while, which are two other movies from this very same year that share commonalities. So, Dago Wab, Garlic Bread, Pizza Sling, and Spaghetti Bin, and Victor Moan, Perry Como, Luciano Pavarotti, Solo Meal, Non Singer, Motherfucker. You gold teeth, gold chain wearing, fried chicken, and biscuit eating, monkey ate, baboon, big guy, fast running, high jumping, spear chucking, 360 degree basketball dunking, titsoon, spade, mulling, yeah. Take your fucking pizza, pizza, and go the fuck back to Africa. You little slanty-eyed, mean old speaky American, own every fruit and vegetable stand in New York, bullshit Reverend Sun Young Moon, some Olympic 88 Korean kickboxing Sabadam bitch. You Goya bean eating 15 in a car, 30 in an apartment, pointy shoes, red wearing, menudo, meet a meet a Puerto Rican cocksucker. Yeah, you! It's cheap. I got good price for you. Near catch it. How I am doing? Chocolate, egg cream drinking, bagel and deluxe, banana for this Jew asshole. Yo! Hold up! Time out! Time out! Y'all take a chill! You need to cool that shit out! And that's the double truth! You know what my least favorite thing about this movie is? Mookie. Are you supposed to like Mookie? I didn't think I disliked him. I just felt like he was in the middle of a lot of things where he was just trying to keep the peace. But then at the end, he was just like, you know what? Fuck this. And then, you know, throws the trash can through the window. I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's somebody that that doesn't have, you know, no foundation really to the beliefs that he has and is very easily swayed by, I guess, in the case of do the right thing, a mob. I'm still very unsure of what I'm supposed to feel at the end. Confused. I think you're supposed to. Like, what's the right way to go? What is the right thing? I hope I... All right, fuck you. The fact that there is no resolution really at the end is the point of the movie. Is like, there's still no resolution to like, they're just going to go about the rest of their days and proceed. And it's honestly like how it is with a lot of cases when black individuals get killed by police officers. You know, people just keep going about their day and don't think about it. There's no change that happens unless, you know, you can rally some people together. So I feel like to me, that's what I left with at the end of the movie is like, well, they're just going to keep going. And that's that. It is interesting when you also think like, then there was Crash and Crash won Best Picture and everything is tidied up in like a little yellow bow at the end of that movie. And then like we were saying with Green Book and Driving Miss Daisy, and then there's like this movie, can a film do race relations, right? And it's like, yeah, as long as you don't tie it up at the end, because yeah. it's still ongoing as a subject and issue. Well, oh, are we ready? Bummed me out, man. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. Yeah. If I tell you, just think, what are some classic independent cinema? You might name Sam Raimi and Evil Dead or Tarantino and Reservoir Dogs. You might mention Richard Linklater or Spike Lee. But I think more of us need to mention Gus Van Sant and his film Drugstore Cowboy. I was once a shameless full-time dope fiend. Yeah, me, Bob. The sweet mother's son. Me and my crew robbed drugstores. I had done them all, up and down the Pacific Northwest with pharmacies open to close. Didn't matter, except for technique. 
But don't get the idea it was easy. It's hard being a dope fiend. And it's even harder running a crew. It's a movie about thieves and junkies. It is based on the novel by James Fogle. Spro, you're a writer. Do you know anything about this dude? No, but I mean, like, based off of my quick research, it looks like a classic case of write what you know. Oh, yeah. A lot of these movies were rewatches for me. Drugstore Cowboy was a first viewing, and I was fucking riveted from the opening sequence. Characterization is good, if a bit on the nose occasionally, but Jesus, the acting is superb. Right down to the author William S. Burroughs as the aging junkie priest. Just a fucking great movie. It's one of those movies that it gives me the feeling that I got when I was in my teens, late teens and early 20s, where it's like, I want to make a movie. <laughs> you know that feeling? <laughs> I did. Not necessarily with this. This movie was dirty. It's good. I like Gus Van Sant. I know that's not novel for the cinephiles out there, but I think he's one of the directors like De Palma that does artsy stuff that mainstream people would know, like Goodwill Hunting. There's a lot of movies like Drugstar Cowboy about the drug life and the repercussions of, but after watching this movie, it seems a lot of those that came after tried to be this. But if I may, not to be totally positive, Matt Dillon is a tough watch for me. It's something about his voice with his face. (laughs) Something about his skin and his hair. I don't want him to take this personally, but it's just something about him that's fucking off. Maybe it was there's something about Mary that kind of just tainted me about Matt Dillon. Which he is, was he is the funniest thing. He's the funniest thing about there. there's something <laughs> about Mary. And then you got Crash and his character in that. The way that he delivers lines and this characters that he plays, I feel like that's just who he is. Hey, uh, we got to do the. I don't know. I can't even do a Matt Dillon impersonation. I don't. I don't. I've never met anybody that could. Tell me you didn't laugh when he climbs out the window of the hospital when he gets trapped and he waits for them, the two orderlies who are chasing him, and one of them pokes <laughs> their head out and he just goes. Whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> he doesn't make. He doesn't make the curly sound, but he just kind of like slaps him across the face. <laughs> This movie was fucking great, dude. I cannot wait to watch this one again. I'm glad you liked it. All right. Well, that takes us to Edward Zwick's Glory, the 54th Massachusetts, Denzel's single Oscar winning tier, James Horner's greatest score, solid recreations, absolutely memorable film. Yet, it is the story of the 54th Massachusetts, one of the first all black regiments in the American military. And it's told mostly through the eyes of Robert Gould Shaw, the reluctant white hero. He has this moment of cowardice in the opening of the film in the Battle of Antietam, but finally finds his courage and rises to the occasion to give his life during the attack on Fort Wagner. I mean, literally, he's portrayed as the bravest motherfucker in this movie, and he looks like he's about 105 pounds soaking wet. It's tacky. I don't know how else to put it. And God damn it if Broderick didn't stick out like a sore thumb. Apparently, he was always Zwick's first choice to play this role, which I find very strange. To borrow a phrase, bro, he bumps me out uh, frequently. And there's another scene I get hung up on. It's where the, the dickhead racists from the white regiment are yelling, you know, when they're on their way to march towards their doom, they're like, give them hell, 54th. These are the same dickheads that spewed racist shit at them less than an hour before. And they're like, we've changed. I don't know. I'm willing to overlook its faults. I love the shit out of it on a personal level. I've seen this movie countless times, but I think since we have the benefit of hindsight, I don't know about it as best picture of 1990. Claire, you are about to disagree with me. (laughs) I actually agree that I don't think it's best picture 
theater of 1990, but I freaking loved this movie when I first saw it. And I don't remember what age I was. I feel like I was pretty young, probably too young to be watching this, but really irked me that this wasn't nominated. And I don't know if this is a controversial opinion, but I'd actually swap it with Born on the Fourth of July if I'm going to pick a war movie. And I think it's because I just don't typically like biopics where it focuses on a person's life from start to finish. And that's what Born on the Fourth of July kind of is. But with the glory, I feel like this is such a small window of time in the grand scheme of things happening. I think it is really well paced. But as you mentioned, it does suffer from primarily focusing on the experiences of a white general, even though it's supposed to be about this black regiment. But thank God we do like at least get some dedicated scenes with the black regiments. I think it's crazy that Morgan Freeman was in this movie the same year as Driving Miss Daisy. I feel like he should have been nominated for in this role instead, but at least Denzel Washington won Best Supporting Actor. So... When did you first see this movie? Do you remember? Me or Claire? Both. We're all friends here. Well, Claire said she doesn't remember. She said she was young. Super young. I mean, probably 11, 12, 13-ish. But it was like home at your house? Yeah. I don't think it was at school. I think I saw it at home. And that's yeah. the weird thing. Like, we watched this in eighth grade. And I'm like, how did they expect us to understand anything, especially mm-hmm. in the little suburban town that I grew up in? Like, all of the race just went over my head at that Mm -hmm. age in my sheltered environment. I feel like the teachers just were like, this is a great Civil War movie and you're going to learn a lot. And then they put it in and then didn't teach us anything about what we were imbibing. The other thing I want to talk about, Andre Brower is by far one of my favorite things about Mm -hmm. this movie. And he was also in Homicide Life on the Streets. I love this man and I love everything that he brought to the role. He, to me, is the one that I can't take my eyes off in the film. And you're an idiot. Is it true? There's to be a colored regiment? So it seems. Then I am your first volunteer. Yeah, I really liked his role in this movie too. And I feel like he was kind of the connection between Matthew Broderick's character, but then also Denzel Washington and Morgan Freeman, where he was kind of trying to exist in both worlds. And I thought it was interesting how we see that play out in the movie. But, you know, ultimately, he had a tough time with that, um, (laughs) with the training. I really, I feel like I thought I remembered him quitting and leaving, but he doesn't. He sticks with it. Well, he like he breaks your heart as well, Mm. too, when he realizes going from the excitement of getting to go into the war and whatnot, and then realizing that he's going to have to abide by the hierarchy of the military. And, you know, Matthew Broderick is no longer his friend. That Mm. scene where his face just kind of drops breaks my heart. I know. This was his first film, too. Oh, my God. I had no idea. He deserves a newcomer award. Yeah. What did Um, you think about Matthew Broderick's performance, Claire? You know, it's Matthew Broderick. Like, (laughs) it is what it is. I definitely think that mm, it's a little weird of a casting, if I'm going to be honest. Are we all sitting here, like, watching Ferris Bueller? Like, is that? I'm like Simba from Blank. Like, (laughs) that's that's where I go. (laughs) 
for me, the hero of this movie is Denzel Washington. Like, I think I, it could have benefited from being more focused on him and what was happening and what he was going through than Matthew Broderick. And there's definitely parts of the movie still where, to me, I'm like, that wasn't told very well, like the whole whipping scene. And then all of a sudden, like, Matthew Broderick's like, oh, I was wrong. But he hadn't he even apologized for what happened. It just seemed weird and brushed over. So that didn't sit right with me on the rewatch. But yeah, Matthew Broderick's interesting choice for this movie. I do like this movie. I don't want to, I, I have been shitting on it. As third acts of films go, just everything. The final charge, the music, once Broderick goes down and then Denzel goes down and then them coming around the corner, kind of like Butch Cassidy, you not exactly seeing them die, but it's like, oh, they're fucked. And then it cuts to the very like soft, you know, vocal performance and it goes to slow-mo. And he, as a kid, it was just like, it was a very, it's still a very simple metaphor, but it's still just is so powerful. Denzel yeah. and Matthew brought, yeah, dude, in the sand pit is just. Whew. And I forgot that they did not take that fort that they completely lost. And for some reason, I thought that they had like one, but the whole like point is that it fueled a lot of other black individuals to join in the civil war and fight for freedom and all of that. So I, I definitely get it. But I don't know, for some reason, I was like, they do take the fort, but they did not. You know what? HBO should do a series called The 54th. Yeah. Where it's just a limited series. Do like eight episodes, but make it better. <laughs> yeah. Timothy yeah. Chalamet. <laughs> actually, actually, he wouldn't be he wouldn't be terrible, but he's even wafier than than Broderick. Mm, yeah. You could do Pedro Pascal, I mean. Oh, you love him. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this one is not gonna be best picture, but I, I wanna give a shout out to this one. Can we talk about Kiki's delivery service really quickly? Sure. Lighten the mood a little bit. Honestly, this is the most normal Miyazaki film I've ever seen. Granted, the main character Kiki is a witch and she can fly, but I mean, my, my first taste of Miyazaki style was spirited away. And uh, let me tell you, that fucking movie makes an impression. That is some weird shit that will make you feel like you are on drugs, even if you're not. So watching this one, kept waiting for something batshit insane to happen and nothing ever did. It's just a really super chill movie about this young witch trying to make it on her own in just one of the coolest oceanside cities in all of animated cinema. I mean, I want to live there. But again, you know, stacked against some of these other picks. It's, it's lacking gravity. A nice movie to be sure, but not best picture. It is surprising and it's got staying power because as soon as I watched this film, I went into school the next day and one of my fifth graders came up to me and was like, guess what I'm watching today? Kiki's Delivery Service. I was like, really? Weird. It was one of those things where I was like, like, there's no fucking way that this just happened because <laughs> the fact that this is a movie from 1989 and I'm only watching it for this podcast. This movie is very cute. To me, I'm going to go back and I'm going to watch Spirited Away six days out of the week over Kiki's delivery service. But if I should ever have children, this is going to be one of those that I show them yes. beforehand. If I'd watched Kiki's Delivery Service as like a six or seven year old, I probably would have liked it because that's before you're like, this is girl stuff. But <laughs> Jesus Christ, if I had watched Spirited Away as a six or seven year old, I would have had fucking nightmares. All right, let's fly through this next one too. Lean on me. 
Morgan Freeman was one busy motherfucker this year. I mean, <laughs> as far as Lean on Me goes, other than Freeman's performance, this movie is fucking corny, dude. Oh, yeah. Corny now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so you mean it probably wasn't corny in the 80s? Correct. Maybe. Maybe. I'm still willing to bet there were plenty of people rolling their eyes 34 years ago, though. To me, there's some good scenes in it. I really like when he collects all the bad apples and puts them on the stage and then says, you're good to go. And then turns to the kids and just like lays down the law. Those are my favorite scenes of Lean on Me when Morgan Freeman is commanding the room. I want all of you to take a good look at these people on the risers behind me. These people have been here up to five years and done absolutely nothing. These people are drug dealers and drug users. They have taken up space. They have disrupted the school. They have harassed your teachers, and they have intimidated you. Well, times are about to change. You will not be bothered in Joe Clark's school. These people are incorrigible. And since none of them could graduate anyway, you are all expurgated. You are dismissed. But we don't have to talk about it. All right. Next on the docket is Disney's The Little Mermaid. Spro, got some strong feelings on this one? I don't know like how much I want to share, but like The Little Mermaid for me was my first crush and she was half fish half the time. So here's something about me, a personal little anecdote, is that I have found that if I am very tired or very stressed out, all those feelings go away if I sing Disney. I worked in a commercial kitchen for 10 years and anybody that knows commercial kitchens and the service industry, it is a lot of swearing and cussing people out. And you can picture a little blonde me in the corner singing Ursula or singing Simba or anything like that just to block out the noise and be stress-free. I remember seeing Bambi in the theater and not being traumatized by it like everybody else because I barely even remembered it. But then Little Mermaid for me was my first introduction to this wonderful world, the happiest place on earth that is Walt Disney and I love everything about this movie. I love the songs. I love the message. I love the fact that true love exists and because I'm also antisocial and introverted and shy that you don't even have to say a word and the right person will find you. I like The Little Mermaid. I don't know if I would nominate it for Best Picture. For me, Little Mermaid didn't really change the game in any way other than it changed my little childhood. That was so lovely. Ugh. <laughs> I told you I had a bad day. For me, with The Little Mermaid, I mean, I'm just like a Disney buff. When I was little, that is all I watched. I don't even really remember watching much TV. We had a chest full of Disney movies, and Little Mermaid was one of them. This wasn't my favorite Disney movie, but it was, I think, my sister's, and she's my older sister. She advocated for my name to be Ariel right before they had me, and I'm not Ariel, obviously. Fun, Fun fact. But yeah, I mean, The Little Mermaid, I, I enjoy this movie. I think the songs are great. Was this like during or at least the beginning stages of the Disney Renaissance. Yeah, this was the first. Like, if yeah. you look at the the years leading up, I think Oliver and Company was either right before this or right after. But yeah, I think it's a shame that we didn't get the um, best animated feature category until much later because I feel like this would have been a winner in that category. 
Are you excited for the live action Little Mermaid? I am. It looks so good. The last few live action Disney movies have not panned out the way I would like them to. And I think it's because, as I mentioned, I'm a very hardcore Disney fan. And if the stories do not line up and the plots are not the same, I get really upset. The exception with that is I did really like Beauty and the Beast, which I don't think a lot of people did, but I did. And Jungle Book, I thought was done really well. And that was a deviation from the original. But for the most part, I do like them to be consistent. Lion King was consistent, but the way that it looked was too real, I think, for a lot of people. And I think that was a criticism. So I feel like the live actions have taken a downturn as of late, but I'm hopeful that Little Mermaid can maybe pick it back up. As a Disney buff, what is your favorite Disney movie? Lady and the Tramp. Oh, deep cut. I just love dogs, so that's why. But also Beauty and the Beast. Bro, were you gasping? Are you okay? No, I just... So my favorite is The Hunchback of Notre Dame and nobody Aww. nobody talks about that anymore. What's your opinion on that one? I like it. I think, it, I mean, not what I hear happens in the story because uh, the story is much darker, but I do like that movie. I watched that one a lot. Okay. Bro, just wants to make sure you're on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I had the VHS tape, so I watched it for sure. Well, not that anybody asked, but my favorite is probably Robin Hood. Ooh. I think before I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark and Indiana Jones became the person I wanted to be, I watched Robin Hood every day. It was that, you know, did you have a movie that you tortured your parents with? Because mine was Robin Hood. I mean, mine was probably Beauty and the Beast. I knew all of the words and my sister and I would do performances of mm-hmm. the, from the movie verbatim because uh, we memorized the entire movie. But yeah. Right before we get off the topic of this one, just a personal little shout out to our past. Lee and I lettered in show choir in high school and sang Kiss the Girl for the pep rally. Oh my gosh, that sounds so adorable. Yeah, I kind of wish that Spro hadn't uh, dropped dime about show choir, but here we are. (laughs) (laughs) We're talented. Uh, Here's another one that's not going to be a best picture, but I want to talk about it just for a second. Parenthood. You don't have to be a parent to enjoy it. It's a little too long. Still A tier, if you ask me. Oh, yeah. It's much more nuanced than I remembered. But of course, I last was watching it through the eyes of a child and chuckling at the kid with the trash can on his head running into walls. Still reference it to my sisters when they were having kids. And those kids sometimes wear waste baskets and run into walls. It's apparently a thing that some small children do. Can I talk about Sex, Lies, and Videotape? You can. All right. In 34 years, I don't think there's been a movie quite like this one. Plenty of American films have tried to tell stories about suburban angst, sex, and communication. I don't think any of them have ever managed it with as much poise as Sex, Lies, and Videotape. I love that it was Soderbergh's arrival. I love how on the cheap it was made. I just don't like the absolute final shot with Spader and McDowell. A happy and hopeful ending does not work for this story, no matter how how subtle or open-ended soda bread tried to make it. So next is a movie, man, some years, there just aren't enough Oscars to go around, guys. In 1989, a film named Steel Magnolias came out. And then in 1990, it was only up for one Academy Award. And that was Best Supporting Actress for Julia Roberts, who absolutely deserved that nomination. I think it could have and should have gotten many more nominations and some wins. But I was surprised to find not quite so adorable by critics. And fuck them though. I love every inch of this movie. Every performance, every line, every 
set, every prop. I, I just want to be a seven-year-old boy with like a toy truck hanging out underneath the counter at Truvy's salon, just listening to all the ladies talk shit. This film is beautiful. It's heartbreaking. It's hopeful and kind. And if we want to stop right here and just give Best Picture to Steel Mags, I'm all in. <laughs> here we go. You threaten me, Drum Eatington. Drum would never, ever point a gun at a lady. Your husband is a boil on the butt of humanity. TriStar Pictures presents... Well, this is it. You're finally rid of me. Sally Field. Oh, I think you'd be back every now and then. Dolly Parton. How's your family? Louie brought his girlfriend home, and the nicest thing I can say about her is all of her tattoos are spelled correctly. Oh, I'm Miss Ugh, leave me alone. Shirley MacLaine. I'm not crazy, Malin. I've just been in a very bad mood for 40 years. Daryl Hannah. Miss Trudy, I swear to you that my personal tragedy will not interfere with my ability to do good hair. Olympia Dukakis. Looks like two pigs fighting on the blanket. Julia Roberts. I'm gonna make you very happy. I want a child of my own. Your poor body has been through so much. Why would you deliberately do this to you? Diabetics have healthy babies all the you time. You are special, Shelby. Time has made them close. Life. She's gonna have a baby. Go get a doctor. Has made them friends. <laughs> Steel Magnolias. The funniest movie that will ever make you cry. One, I think everybody enjoyed it. I'm kind of surprised that you're saying that the critics didn't necessarily. Is that what you're saying? No, I think it has like a Metacritic score in the 60s. Yeah, it's 56. Fuck that. Yeah, this film was one that I feel like I was kind of grown up on. Like as I grew up with older sisters in the house, they would always be watching things like Pretty Woman, Breakfast Club, like all the John Hughes movies. So this is kind of where I got into Some Kind of Wonderful and Pretty in Pink, The Princess Bride. I was watching all of those. I think this is the movie that my mom would never turn off. This is the movie that made her chuckle. She really likes Sally Field, Dolly Parton, Shirley MacLaine, Olympia Dukakis. And then when we grew up, I have a sibling that has diabetes and she was about to have a family. So we were petrified that she was going to go through the same kind of stuff that Julia Roberts did. Man, did this movie resonate with me about 25 years after it was made. Breaks your heart, but it also makes you laugh. And I absolutely agree that I would just like to visit these people, to be invited to the cookout, to sit there and watch them bicker and just smile as I take another bite of potato salad. But speaking of John Hughes movies, we can move on to Uncle Buck. Probably don't need to talk about this one, but goddamn, there's a movie missing in our history that is a John Hughes story about John Candy and Macaulay Culkin hanging out together. Because these three men together, John Hughes, John Candy, and Macaulay Culkin, they are gold. I love to watch them on the screen. But it's also curious that one year after this film, a scene from it would be ripped off almost shot for shot by the movie Home Alone. Do you know what scene I'm talking about? Uh, no. At the very end, the mother shows up in the, you know, fabric-y trench coat and stands in the doorway like waiting to either be admonished or welcomed and the kid oh, yeah. looks at them and has to With decide like a, yeah and then warms up and then tearfully goes into their arms fucking wild yeah it's a great movie but not a best picture nope 
we can move on. All right. Let's talk about When Harry Met Sally. Spro, you go ahead. Well, if there ever was a comedy that needed the gold, this one was it. So I also read all of Nora Ephron and Nora Ephron's script. It amazed me that one, I don't know what came first, Billy Crystal's voice or the words on the page, but they just match up so perfectly with what was delivered on the screen. And then to see the monologues that were written for Meg Ryan's character and to realize just how good she is delivering her lines. I love it. This movie to me is perfectly put together. I don't think there's anything about this movie that I don't like. And I've watched it so many times that I'd probably be able to scrutinize a scene or two. Crystal and Ryan, what great chemistry. Who who knew? Hanks did three movies with Meg Ryan, and I don't think one of them comes close to this one. Bruno Kirby, Carrie Fisher, both wonderful. The Oscar-nominated script by Nora Ephron. It's a bit like one of my other favorite romantic comedies, The Apartment. I think these two movies will always be relevant and accessible to new audiences, no matter how old they get. Easily the best romantic comedy since we were born. Claire, we're just two guys in love with uh, <laughs> romantic comedy, so please be gentle. You know what? Romantic comedies get shit on, and I do love a romantic comedy every now and then. For me, like the 90s were peak romantic comedy. I don't know so much about the early aughts and, and beyond. I feel like they kind of tanked after that, but... When Harry Met Sally, it'd been a while since I'd seen it, but Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan are really good. I don't know if I would say it's better or worse than her with Tom Hanks, but there's so many iconic things that just come out of this movie. The whole, I'll have what she's having, or the New Year's Eve party and, you know, Billy Crystal's declaration of love to Meg Ryan at the end. I mean, how could you not swoon over that? And Billy Crystal, I don't find someone to be very much like the swoon worthy, (laughs) if you will, kind of person. Not to like shade Billy Crystal. I think he's an incredibly funny actor and comedian. But yeah, he surprised me a little bit in this movie. He's kind of charming. For nobody else. I've been doing a lot of thinking, and the thing is, I love you. What? I love you. How do you expect me to respond to this? How about you love me too? How about I'm leaving? Doesn't what I said mean anything to you? I'm sorry, Harry. I know it's New Year's Eve. I know you're feeling lonely, but you just can't show up here, tell me you love me, and expect that to make everything all right. It doesn't work this way. Well, how does it work? Way. How about this way? I love that you get cold when it's 71 degrees out. I love that it takes you an hour and a half to order a sandwich. I love that you get a little crinkle above your nose when you're looking at me like I'm nuts. I love that after I spend a day with you, I can still smell your perfume on my clothes. And I love that you are the last person I want to talk to before I go to sleep at night. And it's not because I'm lonely, and it's not because it's New Year's Eve. I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. You did mention the early aughts. I would recommend, I usually watch this movie every year for Christmas. My wife introduced this to me. And there's been a couple movies where she's like, we should watch this. And I'm like, fuck that. (laughs) And I watched and I'm like, all right, I was wrong. And one of them was Just Friends with Ryan Reynolds and Amy Smart and Chris Klein. Oh, I have seen that. It's funny. Oh, it's fantastic. I love that one very much. Yeah, I don't. uh, Oh, man. P.S. I love you. 
I've never that's Hillary Swank and Gerard Butler, right? Yeah, which I just contradicted myself because I think that's early aughts, but I <laughs> do really love that movie. Did you read yeah. the book? No, I didn't even know there was a book. The writer of the book is Cecilia Ahern, and she is this young Irish author from Ireland. Wow, that was a great sentence. <laughs> she also wrote another book called Rosie Dunn. It is all written from the perspective of like found notes between a boy and a girl, like all the way from like them passing notes in grade school where it's like, oh, do you want to come to my birthday party or whatnot? All the way to them writing fanciful letters as adults to one another. She wrote it when she was 21. It's by far one of my the books that I recommend to everybody. So if you like P.S. I Love You, you'll love the book. You'll love the author. And I would check out Rosie Dunn. Oh, I just wrote it down so I can check it out because I definitely <laughs> like to find new reads. P.S. I Love You is just one of those movies where I saw it with my husband and boyfriend at the time. And we were just watching it in the basement. And there's a scene at the end where Hillary Swink just breaks down and starts crying. And so I started sobbing. I think it's the first time he ever saw me crying. He goes, what's wrong? And I'm like, it's just so sad. And, you know, once you realize what's going on in the, in the movie, I don't know how much you all know about what happens. But yeah, I mean, it really gets you. Is When Harry Met Sally your favorite romantic comedies, bro? It's between When Harry Met Sally and Pretty Woman. Mm. Do love me some Pretty one. Woman. I love love. It's a good time. Aww. And laughing. Love and laughing. Hmm. Sign me up. I'm folding my arms angrily. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about a not so fun movie. That was a great segue. We're done with the non-nominated. So it's time to talk about those other four films that were up for Best Picture of 1990, but lost to Driving Miss Daisy. And first up is Oliver Stone's adaptation of Ron Kovic's memoirs, Born on the Fourth of July. Big war going on. What is it? Vietnam. Vietnam. And he said that, that, that the Marines are going to be the first ones in and ain't going to last too long. That's right, so if we don't sign up soon, we're gonna miss it. I've already decided I'm going in. Really? Just like that? Yeah, I'm not waiting. I'm going in now. Come on, Ronnie, you're crazy. No, you're crazy. Our dad's got to go to WW2. This is our chance to do something. To be part of history, guys. Yeah, just like our dads. You should think about what you're doing, you know, Ronnie? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> it could be dangerous over there, you know? You, you, you could get yourself killed. Did you ever think about that? Where you going, squirrel head? College. Well, I want to do Remember. something with my life. Yeah, I can get a degree in business administration. Yeah, and you don't think you need to serve your country? Don't you care about anybody but yourself? Huh? Better dead than red. And I got missiles pointing at us everywhere. ICBMs. They're coming in all around us. Cuba now. 90 miles away. Ronnie, you're taking over the yeah, whole world. when are we going to stop them? Huh? Ronnie, you ain't Superman. You can't stop them all by yourself. Stop theory. Communism is moving in everywhere. Oh, right? yeah, sure. Where, Ronnie? I don't see them. They're not right here in Massapequa, so I'm just going to take care of number one. No, that's right, Timmy, me, Stevie, number one. Stevie, Stevie, it's okay. Because someone's got to stay home with the women and children while the men go do the fighting. That's right. nuts. And I'm getting out of here. All I'm saying is you should just think about it, you know? Just think about it, Ronnie. I am on the record about biopics, but rather than just bitch about Austin Butler and Rami Malek and Renee Zellweger, I'm going to expand my bitching into the four reasons why I tend to eschew and denigrate movies about famous people. Reason number one, the subjects and the stories to me rarely feel timely or judiciously chosen. I don't see any relevance in our modern day a lot of the time, not all the time, but a lot of the time. Reason number two, in order to make biopics safe, inspirational, and economically advantageous films, they almost always bend the truth or outright fucking lie. 
Number three, they have become overt Oscar bait, especially in the last couple decades. It is pathetically transparent. And number four, and this is the one that really gets my fucking goat, when they're successful, like Elvis was this past year, they crowd the cultural space and they overshadow original films that spring from pure creative impulse. That said, I think they can be done well. Ed Wood, Raging Bull, American Splendor are a few that come to mind. But I think since the early 2000s, standouts like those are the exception rather than the rule. Claire, am I being too judgmental? Really quick, is it biopic, biopic, or both? (laughs) I think both are fine. There are certain things that grate on my wife's nerves. And every time I say biopic, she's like, no one calls it a biography. It's a biography, like a biopic. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I call it (laughs) But don't worry about it. Don't worry about her. She's in the other room. She can't hear. So sorry. I just, that's how I heard it. So that's what I picked up. And then I heard biopic. I think my sister actually called it biopic once. And I laughed and I was like, it's pronounced a bio. Pick and now I'm learning, and it is actually also pronounced biopic. Anyway, <laughs> yes, so I do agree with a lot of your points when it comes to biopics. Oftentimes, it's not even really the actors that I have a problem with. Like, I think Austin Butler did a really good job as Elvis, even though I do think it's weird that he kept up the act for months or I don't know how long, maybe even a year after really, the filming ended. Really I, yeah, weird. so weird. But I digress. Similarly, with Tom Cruise's performance in in Born on the Fourth of July, it is exceptional, definitely worthy of a nomination. So I kind of like compartmentalize it that way, where the acting is phenomenal, but the typical quote unquote format of a biopic, that's what bothers me a lot. And Elvis suffered from that, I think, where it was Elvis was just like bam, 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 one event after the other. And it was hard for me to even process what was happening from one scene to the next. And I think this idea of taking an entire person's life and boiling it down to two and a half hours. It's just really overdone by this point. I'm really bored by it. So maybe that's not even, you know, a knock on Born on the Fourth of July because at this point in 2023, it's like it's been done. And so now I'm watching a movie from 1989 and thinking, I don't want to keep watching this kind of movie. And that's what I really liked about the biopic Spencer, which was like not even necessarily a biopic. It was more so of like they said a fairy tale retelling of what was happening to Princess Diana at this monumental time in her life and how that impacted the rest of her life. So it was a really small window that we were viewing in that movie. But with Born on the Fourth of July, the movie to me feels really episodic still. It's very predictable, even though I didn't really know the story, I knew it was going to happen. So it's not also really like my style of movie. I feel like it's gritty and very dark and just super bleak. And not to say that all of those things make it a bad movie. I just don't think it was for me. And at least in Glory, you had some hope before it all went to shit. So that's my two cents. I read Born on the Fourth of July in a lit class, and I realized that I'd never seen the movie, so I rented it from Bowling Green, Ohio's once towering, now defunct video spectrum, which was, God, the greatest video store of all time. And I was really impressed. Cruz may be his best performance, and I still think it's a good movie, but the first two acts are what work for me. The third doesn't. I think it starts to meander, and I know it's played for laughs, but the part where he and Willem Dafoe are like... (laughs) 
oh tussling God. on the ground. I'm like, what the fuck is happening? And Stone absolutely did not deserve Best Director this year. Not by a goddamn long shot. In fact, we might have stumbled on a future episode. Like, how did he win for Born on the Fourth of July and not for JFK? I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Uh, JFK is one of those movies that comes across on my TV screen and I have to watch it all the way through, even though it is like an epic movie. Oh, I have the extended cut, which is like an extra 40 minutes and I love watching it. I ran across a bartender that also loved the movie JFK and I seriously sat at that bar until like the bars close here in Cleveland, 2.30 a.m., but they're pretty much kicking you out at 2 a.m. I sat at the bar until like 3.30 and we just discussed JFK Mm. like over and over again. He was like, you don't have to leave, bro. Just stay here. That's a cool bartender. Yeah. He was, I mean, I've never seen him again. They come in and out of your lives if you're not an alcoholic. So the, um, <laughs> the one thing is I've never seen this movie. I watched this movie for the first time for this podcast, which is kind of surprising to me because I love Oliver Stone and this movie seems kind of up my alley. I agree with everything both of you said, especially the thing about how the first two acts were really gripping. And by the third act, I was starting to phase out. I wasn't really paying attention anymore, but just to watch the whole thing of like how this man got into the army, how he got traumatized by the things that he was seeing and then injured and then trying to come back from it. I was engaged that whole way. But for some reason, once it started getting into the politics, I was like, I get it. And really what Claire was saying was like, now that it's 2023 and we're looking back, like it just seems like this story has been so overdone nowadays that in hindsight, was it really telling you anything new about the Vietnam War that you had to see in 1989? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's move on to one that's a little bit more hopeful throughout with a moment of tragedy. Peter Weir's Dead Poets Society. Now, I've started the conversation on all of these films, but Claire, I would like you to start the conversation on this. One. I what would love to start I, the I conversation on this one. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, my person, and I know everybody's opinion is different, but if I'm going to pick any of these nominees, the ones that were actually nominated to win Best Picture, it is this one. And maybe I'm just biased because I'm a huge Robin Williams stan. He's the love of my life. He was in every movie I loved growing up, but I just also love Dead Poets Society. I mean, it just gets me in the feels every goddamn time. And there is so much like hope that is conveyed throughout the entirety of the movie. And you think, wow, something actually really might change. And then it just hits you over the head with that tragic scene at the very end. So I think it's all incredibly paced very well. And it's a very well done story. There's so many iconic scenes, quotes, performances, and the ending alone is enough to elevate this movie to a win in my book, because what's more of a middle finger to the man than everyone standing on their desks in defiance and saying, oh, captain, my captain. I just think it's a real shame that this movie didn't win. And I might go as far to say it could have won best director, but if I don't get best director, I'd give it best picture. Words and language, no matter what anybody tells you, Words and ideas can change the world. Now, see that look in Mr. Pitt's eye, like 19th century literature has nothing to do with going to business school or medical school, right? Maybe. Mr. Hopkins, you may agree with them, thinking, yes, we should simply study our Mr. Pritchard and learn our rhyme and meter and go quietly about the business of achieving other ambitions. A little secret for you. Huddle up. Huddle up! We don't read and write poetry because it's cute. 
we read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion. And medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. To quote from Whitman, Oh me, oh life of the questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, what good amid these, oh me, oh life? Answer, that you are here, that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. The powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. What will your verse be? I do love Peter Weir. We did an episode once where we gave Truman Show Best Picture, mm-hmm. but I think he could have won Best Director for that one. I did like Dead Poets Society when I was a kid. It was one of those endings that I would rewind and rewind and rewind and rewind and just sit there and be like, yeah, man. Now I watch it. I'm like, it's so melodramatic. I don't know. Call me jaded. You're jaded. I miss, you know, when like somebody famous dies and it hits hard and you're like, fuck, Mm -hmm. like I'm never going to get to see them in anything new. That happened to me with Robin Williams. It happened to me with Alan Rickman. Happened to me with Paul Newman. I don't know. I just, I would prefer remembering the Fisher King, Robin Williams or the bird cage robin williams but spro settle this i side with claire yay <laughs> uh, no actually so it is confi- like robin williams i think is the only like you listen to a lot of celebrities robin williams for me is the only one that i will say i miss he is a breath of fresh air every time he is on the screen he is so funny but yet so warm-hearted every performance that he gives straight from the soul It is unbelievable what this man gave us, and it was unbelievably sad when he left us. So he is the one person that I will always miss. Call me a lover of poetry. I love this movie. I love the feel of this movie. We took away Al Pacino's Oscar for Scent of a Woman, but there's something about this like boarding school atmosphere that I really like. And I just kind of want to like live in these kind of films with the same kind of score going on in the background. But rewatching this film now kind of pissed me off. Like I was like, wait a minute, the whole melodramatic ending and standing on the desk. Yeah, but all these little shits let this man lose his job so they can save a little bit of their reputation in their parents' eyes and the school's eyes. Like, Robin Williams did nothing wrong. He's getting shit on at the end of this movie. So I was a little bit, as like a 40-year-old man was sitting back and being like, good job standing on your desk. Maybe don't sign the paperwork next time, buddies. You know who didn't sign the paper? Charlie Dalton, aka Rwanda. <laughs> he was my favorite. They're like, you got expelled. Never see him again. Just a- <laughs> Yeah, that was the because I talked about this movie with another podcast recently. And we were all in agreement that it kind of sucked that he didn't get to be in the very ending scene when he was so pivotal to a lot of the rebellion that happened. But yeah, ultimately, I tried to remember that these are still kids. I don't know how old they're supposed to be, but kids can be persuaded by a lot of things and a lot of pressures. So, you know, once you single each of them 
now I can understand why they succumbed, but I liked that they rebelled at the end still. And I love how everything kind of unfolds and you see through everybody's individual eyes how um, the teaching of Robin Williams and the poetry affects them all, affects their lives, Mm -hmm. affects their outlooks on life, and then also their confidence levels and everything like that. It's very inspiring. I think the only thing that I do not like about the film is the slow motion when he discovers his son's body and it's just no oh, yeah you know like that felt weird it reminded me of a scene i don't know if anybody watched the probably emmy award-winning beverly hills 90210 there was an episode in that about playing with guns where the kid was spinning the gun in his hand and then he accidentally shot himself and it was all a psa about don't play with guns mm-hmm. but that was very reminiscent of that scene and to have like a dead poet society scene reminding me of you know mm-hmm. tori spelling's dad's show it was too much that would be my only caveat but everything i mean i it's such a great rewatch and i will do it again and again yep i'm gonna be the the dickhead but that's okay coming from a teaching standpoint how do you see it Mm. from a teacher standpoint do not ask me that i want to know peel back that onion it's fantasy bullshit education is a sinking ship I cannot wait to leave the profession so much that I feel like I'm being let out of prison. I feel like I am I am lifting a thumb off of my fucking neck and I cannot wait. <laughs> That's fair. Hey, I appreciate it. Thank you for validating my feelings. Let's move on to another one that I don't like. <laughs> Field of Dreams, which is odd that I don't like this because I am apt to getting emotionally caught up in films. I think I cry quite easily, but God damn it for the life of me, I will never understand the love for this movie. The theme of unfinished business doesn't resonate with you? I guess not. I mean, when this movie came out, I was all in on Costner. Baseball was still life. You'd think I would have loved it. But it was in one ear and out the other for me. I watch it now and it's it's kind of like watching National Treasure in the way that Costner navigates the clues that he gets from the quote unquote voice. Magical boomerisms, dude. Magical boomerisms. I'd never watched this movie. And I actually was like, I'm not really going to like this because it's about baseball. And I'm just not into sports that much. But the opposite happened to me. I kind of got hooked into this movie. That being said, does it deserve Best Picture nomination? This feels a bit weird that it got nominated, but I did like watching Kevin Costner. And I think the standout stars for me were James Earl Jones and Amy Madigan. I kind of wish that James Earl Jones had been nominated for Best Supporting Actor and her for Actress. Like, honestly, switch switch out Dan Aykroyd with James Earl Jones for this movie because I like him with a that. lot. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I have a heart. So I did get teary-eyed at the end because it's about his dad. My God. Mm. It's really touching. I never mm. did get to play catch with my dad, which is ridiculous. My dad was a pitching prospect for the Detroit Tigers. Oh, and wow. And he messed up his knee and we never played catch. Mm. But it wasn't the kind of relationship that we had. But what I love about this movie is the construction of it. And it is, to me, I did not see it coming. I did not see all the foreshadowing and whatnot. The part that always pisses me off is when his brother-in-law ends up almost killing his daughter accidentally but like always in that scene I'm like what the fuck is he doing and so I'm so angry about this thing going on that I forget the fact that the one person that they're saving grew up to be a doctor and actually prefers the fact that he can help people instead of playing baseball and he comes over and saves the girl that's the moment that I really like Field of Dreams they pulled that off 
perfectly. Everything else, the book is the same way where it's more like a mystery instead of like all the trailers and everything you hear about Field of Dreams. It's all about the baseball field. And then you watch the movie and you realize they're there half the time. Everything else is just trying to figure out the unfinished business of all these people's lives. Claire, I absolutely agree with you. Weird nomination for best picture. But in the same instance, like I said, we're talking about 60-year-old white dudes voting and they probably all have that nostalgic feeling of, I just want to play catch one more time with my dad. Boom. Here's a nomination for Kevin Costner's film. Hey, Dad. You want to have a catch? I'd like that. All right. Anywho, let's get to the last one because this is just a monumental episode. The last of the four nominations that did not win Best Picture of 1990 is My Left Foot, the story of Christy Brown, the Irish author and painter who lived with cerebral palsy and created all of his art using the toes on his left foot. And if we're being honest, this is the Daniel Day-Lewis show. He won his first of three Oscars for this performance before retiring to become a cobbler. Brenda Fricker, who played his mother, also won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. But it, it, it really is kind of hard to watch anyone or anything other than Daniel Day-Lewis. Although I, I will give a shout out the young actor who played young Christy Brown. Mm. Pretty good. But forgive me for bursting anybody's bubble here. The script is, like with a lot of biopics, manufactured. It gives Christy this happy ending. He, at long last, manages to bully a woman into loving him back. <laughs> I'm the only one who found that funny. But No, uh, <laughs> that's true. Like I, When you said that, I was like, wow, that's you're kind of right. But the epilogue is distinctly lacking, since many of Brown's closest confidants, family included, have publicly cast aspersions on his wife, Mary Carr. I won't get into it, but it's not nice sounding at all. What? I could sleep. My Is that our Christie up there? Huh? Does that sound like our Christie? Sounds a lot better. Not to me, it doesn't. Are you a mad woman? When she can understand your child for the first time. I always understood him. Oh, well, nobody else ever did. At least he can function now. There's something in that voice that... It disturbs me. What do you mean? Too much hope in it. What? It's too much hope in it. Well, first of all, Daniel Day-Lewis is obviously super talented at what he does. So the entire time, I just couldn't stop thinking, like, did he act like this offset? Like, I just, it's hard for me to wrap my head around method acting, but I digress. I totally get giving the Best Actor Award to Daniel Day-Lewis for this performance. I mean, goddamn, the dude can act. And I'm also happy to see that Brenda Fricker won Best Supporting Actress because to me, this movie is as much about Christy Brown as it is about his mother and their dynamic and the lengths that she went to support him and not give up on him and everything. But overall, the movie just kind of meandered for me. It was, again, a biopic that 
follows events chronologically. And I'm like, guys, can we just stop doing this? I can't stand it. Um, but I don't want to like, I don't want to be mean about this movie because I think it's a really powerful message. But just between this and Born on the Fourth of July, I just feel like the Oscars is uh, getting, well, they were, but still are obsessed with biopics and I'm just kind of done with them at this point. I don't know what I was expecting from a film called My Left Foot. This was another one that I didn't see until this episode. And I also wonder what came first, Daniel Day-Lewis and the child actor, who both did wonderful jobs of pulling Mm -hmm. off cerebral palsy. At first, when you see it nowadays with hindsight and everything, you're like, ooh, do I like this? You know, do I like this portrayal? Is this something that I could get behind. And as it goes on, it just kind of blends together where I can't see where Daniel Day-Lewis ends and the character begins. And I don't understand necessarily, like you said, Claire, with the method acting, to think about how he was contorting his face and everything was giving my face pains and Mm -hmm. aches. (laughs) What? Seriously, like no, it's kind of. I'm, I'm thinking of like being in a comedy club. You ever go see stand-ups and then realize, like, my fucking face hurts. <laughs> yeah, because he was contorting himself at such odd angles and everything that I was like, this film. But in the same instance, the stakes were never raised. You know, like it never made you feel like everything was going to go wrong. Um, the worst part of it, I guess, was when she said she was going to marry another man, and he just starts flipping mm-hmm. out at the restaurant. But in the same Should instance, I, why would you? say that at the restaurant when you know his feelings for you it's like wait and that he can't control his his physicality and everything like that right that whole scene was probably the worst you know like rock bottom Mm -hmm. but it never felt like it was going to one ruin his reputation and never felt like everybody was going to leave him and you know he was never going to get back again especially because the flash forwards always showed him about to be praised so Mm -hmm. the film to me just kind of was one note, one level. And while you're just sitting there being mesmerized by Daniel Day-Lewis and Brenda Fricker to me also agree that I couldn't take my eyes off her. She wasn't doing anything like completely astounding, just the way that she was stoic and her posture and her eyes just kind of scrutinizing everything, especially when the doctor comes in and starts having him recite Hamlet and she is listening, but you could tell that she's like pain and she doesn't like it. But in the same instance, it's working. So she can't necessarily stop it. To me, her and Daniel Day-Lewis is why you watch this movie. I couldn't really care about the story of Christy Brown. There is something to take away from this movie as far as like perseverance goes and, you know, the things that Christy Brown goes through from first of all, being a kid and everyone thinking that he's dumb but really he's very smart and he knows how to do a lot of things. He just needs the teachings to be able to operate in a different way than everyone else. So he gets through that and he tanks with falling in love with his teacher and she obviously doesn't reciprocate that and then it goes up again when you know his mom built him a house outside and he's able to kind of live his life separately from his family and still paint and everything so I get that it has a very powerful message I just don't think it came together for me Let's get down to brass tacks here. It's time for our top three picks. Claire, you're our guest. So if you want to take first whack at your number three, you can, or you can defer to Spro and I. Are these top three of the nominees or top three of any that we talked about? Any that we talked about. Okay, or any great. that we didn't. Just throw a curveball like you're on the field <laughs> yeah. of dreams. 
Okay, so number three for me, I'm going to give it to Abyss. I really liked this movie. I mentioned before, it's a shame it didn't get nominated. But of all the movies listed, this one, I think, kept me engaged one of the most, if not the most. So yeah, that's my number three pick. All right, Spro, you want to go? Sure, I'll go. My number three is Steel Magnolias. boy. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I will never get out of my head Julia Roberts' performance in this movie and her being like, we're gonna get married and then her drinking the orange juice. Oh my gosh, this movie wrecks me. Wrecks me, but then also lifts me up because it is one of the funnier movies that involves elderly white women or older white women. They're not elderly, but kind of. <laughs> Geriatric. That's How worse. old are they? <laughs> Yeah, not all of them. They're varying ages. Yes. They're wise. They are. That's a great way to put it. All right. My number three is, Jesus, man, I've been thinking about this all day and I can't. Sorry. It's like the waiter's at the table and we're all- I can't think when you're talking. I got it. 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 it. Just go with what you feel. Well, that's exactly what I'm doing. Number three is, no, it's not. I'm fucking, I'm going to pull an audible. Jesus. Drugstore Cowboy. I was absolutely floored by this movie. I wish that I had seen this sooner than I did. This was the first time I watched it. It's just remarkable. Front to back, I think it is almost a perfect movie. All right, let's go on to number twos. My number two is going to be Do the Right Thing. It's unfortunate that this movie wasn't nominated, especially during a year when Driving Miss Daisy won for Best Picture. For all the reasons that we talked about, I think this movie is leagues, leagues above Driving Miss Daisy. And so if you're going to nominate a movie that highlights the Black experience, you should nominate this one. And for me, I'm glad I watched this because um, I think it deserved more recognition than it got. At least not the Oscars. This was your first time watching it? Mm-hmm. Nice. Um, so my second one is going to be Dead Poet Society, which Ooh. I talked a lot about. But the feel, the look of the movie, Robin Williams' performance, the recitation of poetry throughout the whole thing. I love it. Not as deep and nuanced as what Claire said about do the right thing. So I feel a little bit more It's idiotic, hard to follow that. But, <laughs> but yeah. Then I'm going to give my number two, which is The Abyss. I think this movie is James Cameron's best with the first Terminator and Aliens neck and neck for second place. We were talking about romantic comedies. I wouldn't categorize this as a romantic comedy, but as far as love stories go, I think Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio and Ed Harris, who are divorced at the beginning of the film, estranged. I just love the, when the two of them are on screen together. I wish they'd been in a bunch more. They, Their relationship is the heart of the movie. And like I said, every time I watch the end, I just weep. So I'm all in on the abyss for number two. I mean, how can you not cry when he types, love you, wife? Oh, God. Just like... Like, so I'm almost sad. getting it right now. I know. And she's Me like, too. you drop your weights and you come back now. Oh, man. Mm. Ugh. Uh. <laughs> it took him 30 minutes just to get down there. Bud, do you hear me? You drop your weights and start back now, bud. That gauge could be wrong. Do you hear me? Just drop your weights and start back now. Your gauge could be wrong. Your gauge could be wrong. You drop your weights and start back now. No, you won't stay there. Do you hear me? You drop your weights. You can breathe shallow, do you hear me? But please, listen to me, please. God damn it, you drive me back with a bottomless pit. You can't leave me here alone now, please. 
God, Virgil, please. Okay, my number one, I think it's pretty obvious, but it's Dead Poets Society for me. I just, I love this movie so much. And yeah, maybe I have my Robin Williams blinders on and I'm just obsessed with Robin Williams, but I don't care because I think he's an incredible actor. He is what makes me want to keep watching this movie over and over again. And I probably like this movie even more so since his passing because I feel like the message that he's saying in this movie resonates so much more with me now. But yeah, I just, I really like the story. I like the pacing of it overall. I think it also has a really good message at the end. And the ending alone, like I said, is enough for me to be like, yeah, I love this movie. I agree with that pick. Usually I say on the show that I think a Best Picture winner should carry with it some kind of social message. And I feel like the question, central question to this movie is still being talked about nowadays when it comes to interpersonal relationships. And I think my number one film for 1989, the 1990 Oscars, is a film that I find just flawless is When Harry Met Sally. So that's my number one pick. Oh, shit. I thought you were going to throw a I was like, he's talking about sex, lies, and videotape, but you weren't. (laughs) Well, I am going to be predictable, Lee, and I'm going to go with Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing for my number one. I think it is also a nearly perfect film. In fact, closer to perfect than Drugstore Cowboy. And it's a perfect replacement, in my opinion, for a movie like Driving Miss Daisy. Spro, add it up. Well, you guys are jerks. We got a tie. (laughs) (gasps) it is a tie between dead poet society and do the right thing yay what happens in the event of a we've never had a tie on here we have never had a tie (laughs) well because claire is our guest as a thank you to her for watching all of these movies and putting up with me we should give it to dead poet society i can stomach that as spro would say (laughs) gentlemen what are the four pillars tradition honor discipline excellence manners up Welton Academy for Boys, a breeding ground for the future leaders of America, an institution dedicated to achievement, virtue, and conformity, a school whose rigid standards are upheld by every single teacher, except one. Come on, Mr. Overstreet, you twerp. Mr. Anderson, are you a man or an amoeba? Language was developed for one endeavor, and that is... To communicate. No! To woo women. Mr. Keating. Some people like to rock, some people like to roll. Touchstone Pictures presents Robin Williams as John Keating, teacher. Well, is this a dagger I see before me? Philosopher. I like Byron. I give him a 42, but I can't dance to him. Orator. Oh, Titus, bring your friend hither. And founder of the Dead Poet Society. A bunch of guys sitting around reading poetry. No. Ding. Thank you for playing anyway. What was the Dead Poets Society? The Dead Poets were dedicated to sucking the marrow out of life. Spirits soared, women swooned, and God were created. Not a bad way to spend an evening, eh? I hereby reconvene the Dead Poets Society. To strive. To seek. To find. Gotta do more. Gotta be more! Dare to walk a new path. Dare to strike out and find new ground. I'm hearing rumors, John, about some unorthodox teaching methods in your classroom. Break out. I'm gonna do it! John Keating. He began by teaching English. Now, he's changing lives. I got the part! Tear out the entire introduction. Who put you up to it? Was it this new man, this, uh, Mr. Keating? Are we just playing around out here? Or do we mean what we say? Tradition, honor, 
Discipline. Rip. Fred tear. What is this dick poet society? I want names. This is a battle. A war. The casualties could be your hearts and souls. For the first time in my whole life, I know what I want to do. Medicine, law, business, engineering. These are noble pursuits. Poetry, romance, love. These are what we stay alive for. That's beautiful. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. Sit down. What the hell is going on here? Seize the day. Touchstone Pictures presents Robin Williams as John Keating. He was the inspiration that made their lives extraordinary. Dead Poet Society. Claire, have you ever been to LA? I have not. I've been to San Francisco and San Diego. So if you go to Hollywood and you go into the Dolby Theater where the Oscars are held, there's pillars on them. And on the pillars in steel is every Best Picture winner's name. And I kind of always like picture like if anybody went down and saw 1989 and looked up and saw Dead Poet Society, they'd be like, yep, I agree with that. I think this one is a good pick. Do we know, like at the time, I feel like Driving Miss Daisy was contentious to win even at the time. Do we know if any of these were more so likely to win or like the public thought one was going to win over the other? That's a great question. In my research, I feel like Driving Miss Daisy was the favorite, but Mm. I'd be interested in looking at that. I wouldn't be surprised if there were a lot of votes for Field of Dreams just because Mm. it was so popular. Driving Miss Daisy probably was more popular with older crowds. Yeah, I mean, Driving Miss Daisy received the most nominations with nine total, and then Born on the Fourth of July came in second with eight. And then when the Oscars went up, it was Driving Miss Daisy that won four awards, and then Glory was second place with three awards. So, it was either going to be Driving Miss Daisy or a war movie. At the very least, maybe we could just do a a quick twofer here. Let's go ahead and take uh, Best Director away from Oliver Stone while we're talking about it. Go ahead and give that one to Spike Lee for Do the Right Thing. That there you feels go. like we did the right thing. Yeah. Aww, look at you. You're so clever oh, with sh- words, my friend. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, congratulations <laughs> to the producers of Dead Poets Society. Your Oscar is going to look so good and so deserving on your mantle. Claire, thank you so much for joining us. Just a, a great guest. Thank you. Moreover, you're a calming podcast presence in my life, and I appreciate your work. Anyway, Claire, the floor is yours. Tell the listeners how they can find Why the Flick one more time. Yeah. So, as you mentioned, we're Why the Flick. We are available on Apple, Spotify, Google, pretty much all the major ones, I feel like. You can look us up and, and find us there. We're also on social at Why the Flick on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Letterboxd. Uh, we post all of our movie reviews there as well. So yeah, definitely check us out. Wow, you are a busy bee. Yeah, tell me about it. I say Twitter, but I post like very sporadically on Twitter. I'm primarily on Instagram and TikTok. Yeah, you're unafraid of showing your own countenance, and I am not interested in doing that. (laughs) I find if I pretend that nobody's going to watch this, it's a little bit easier. And then I'll see like this has X amount of views and I'm like, oh, crap. But yeah, I just try to like compartmentalize that. I don't know that I would have to pretend, but first bro and Lee take on the Academy. I am Lee. I'm Spro. And I'm Claire. And we hope to see you sitting front row when the envelopes are red.
Bro and Lee will return September 18th with part three of their wildly unpopular series, The Streep Effect. You heard me. In the meantime, check out at Take on the Academy on Instagram. Find us on Facebook if you're still kicking around there. Send love notes to takeontheacademy at gmail.com. Hell, you could even rate and review us on your Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google, Facebook, anywhere you prefer. And finally, thanks for listening. Really, thank you. If we were the last people on Earth, we'd probably still do the podcast. But it's less anxiety-inducing to know you're out there sharing the planet with us and listening along. So take a bow and ta-ta for now. Ooh.